haven't been with us the last few weeks, we are in that final week, traditionally known as the week of passion. We're calling it the final week of Jesus' pre-resurrection ministry because he will have a ministry after the resurrection. So we don't want to, you know, kind of uh, restrict the labeling here. It's not the end of Jesus' life. He lives on. It's not the end of his ministry. He continues to minister. He even ministers more on earth. So his pre-resurrection ministry, this final week that began Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry, Jesus presenting himself as the Lamb of God, the Lamb that God would offer to take away the sins of the world, this amazing scene. And as was customary over the days that followed, the lambs would go through an inspection period by which they would be declared uh, to be blameless, to be clean, to be spotless. Jesus is in the midst of this few-day period where he is being inspected, and he is being challenged, and he is having a dialogue with the religious establishment. Now, up front, Jesus knows he's not going to change minds here. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows their intent. But Jesus is going through this inspection process willingly, freely, and ultimately, this will climax with every power broker at play declaring, even after sentencing him to execution, declaring, as Pilate would say, I find no fault with the man, but we're going to kill him anyway. Jesus, the spotless, faultless, sinless Lamb of God. So we're in the midst of kind of the flow of this. Last Sunday, we looked at three different parables that Jesus uh, taught to the people. He's calling out the religious establishment. Uh, if you weren't with us last week, you can go. Uh, you can go back into the archive. You can listen to that. We're picking back up where we left off, which would be verse 15. So Jesus makes this declaration, for many are called, but few are chosen. Then, verse 15, Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him and his talk. So right from the bat, Matthew is giving us the motivation here. The motive. They're not interested in a quest for truth. They're not interested in an honest dialogue. Right from the bat, their motivation is very clean, clear, very plain. They're wanting to entangle Jesus in some type of a trap. They're wanting to get Jesus to say something that would kind of splinter or alienate him from the multitudes, the mobs of people that love him, that adore him, that are basically protecting him at this point. And so the Pharisees come, and, and this was more of the, they were the traditionalists, the fundamentalists, they were more of the, the right side of the, the religious political sphere. They come, they want to entangle Jesus, they want to entrap him. And they said to Jesus, their disciples, with a new group of people, the Herodians, who were the political class, more of the secularists. And so they say, teacher, we know that you are true. And teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, basically the opinions of anyone. For you do not regard the person of men. So they're buttering Jesus up right here from the bat. Hey, we know you're about truth. You speak truth. You speak truth no matter the consequence, if it offends someone, if it doesn't offend someone. It doesn't matter to you. You're a proclaimer of truth. What an acknowledgement, right, about Jesus even from his enemies. 
that Jesus stood on truth, proclaimed truth, and was the way, the truth, and the life. And so they come, they butter them up, we know their motivation, and so here's their question. They're like, tell us, therefore. So in context, the fact that you're not going to lie to us, and you're not afraid of anyone, right? Therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this is a clever little trap they're trying to entangle Jesus in. Let's talk about taxes. Who wants to talk about taxes? No one wants to talk about taxes. But they come to Jesus and they're like, let's talk about taxes. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Hey, this is an occupier. There's graven image. Should we pay taxes or not? And they're trying to get Jesus to say, no, we don't have to support Rome. And that's why the Herodians are there. Because if Jesus is saying, well, we don't have to pay taxes to Rome, he's now inciting some type of insurrection, violence, uh, a, a kickback against the occupier. And then he could maybe give grounds for arrests or some type of legal trouble. So if he says, no, you don't have to pay it, the people will love it, but the Herodians, the, the power brokers will have a, a problem. On the flip side to it, if Jesus is like, yeah, you should pay your taxes, well, the people will be like, oh, that's a bummer. Because they're here anticipating some type of revolution. They're longing for Jesus to lead a, a revolution against Rome, to, to provide freedom for the people. So there is a bit of this kind of catch-22. What do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, he perceived their wickedness. He perceived their wickedness. What a, you know, it really has nothing to do with the passage, but it's an observation that needs to be made. You know, we can talk a lot about Jesus. We can talk a lot about his person, his personality. We can talk a lot about the things that he says. Yes, he's a, a purveyor of truth, speaker of truth. But, you know, I just, I just struck in the moment Jesus perceived. Now, in, in the context, he perceived their wickedness. Jesus knew the motivation of their question. He knew what they were trying to do. He perceived it. He saw right through the flattery. He saw through the facade. He saw through their hypocrisy. He saw their heart. He perceived their wickedness. Uh, do, you, do you know that Jesus has the ability to perceive things that are not spoken? Maybe even things that are spoken that our words try to conceal, that Jesus can perceive exactly what's going on within our hearts. Now, on one aspect, that's kind of scary. On the other aspect, it's also quite liberating. Have you ever been in, in that, have you ever been falsely accused? Have you ever been in a tight spot? Have you ever been struggling to articulate what's going on inside of you? The darkness of the soul, the, the valley of despair, you're bummed. And, and, and even in your own prayers, you come to the Lord and you're like, I don't know how to say what I'm thinking. I don't know how to articulate what I'm feeling. I don't know. I can't find these words. And you come to the Lord. Do you know that he can perceive exactly what's going on without you saying anything? That you're a total open book. Now, again, that's scary, but that should be freeing as well. 
in those moments where we're frustrated and, and nobody understands, Jesus perceives. So he perceives their wickedness, and so he says to them, why do you test me, you hypocrites? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Jesus, I mean, not PC, right? Not PC. Not, these people come with this question. And Jesus is like, <laughs> you're hypocrites. Like, kicks them right in the, the shin, verbally. Yeah, I, I, you know, Jesus, you can take this for what you want. But you really, as you work through the ministry of Jesus and you learn about Jesus, Jesus is not a respecter of feelings. Have you ever pick, have you picked that up on Jesus? That Jesus is not tiptoeing around trying to just protect the cream puff. Like he's going to say what is true and he's actually even going to perceive and then call out what he knows. You guys aren't here. You're testing me. You're wicked. You're hypocrites. He just goes right for the jugular. What boldness, you know? May we have, you talk about Christ-likeness, being like Christ. You know, the time is coming, the time is now that, friend, truth will hurt feelings. And Jesus didn't have a problem hurting a feeling if it was to say the truth. He cared more about the person than their feelings. And he was willing to speak truth, even when it stung. So Jesus says, show me the money. Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. Now, for those that are in the health and wealth movement that like to point to Jesus' incredible bank accounts, I should point out that he didn't even have a denarius on him. No. I mean, you talk about broke. He had no money. So he's like, I need some money. I'm going to make a point. Anybody got some money I can borrow? You get, what, what do you got? So they give him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? So they said to him, Caesar's. So Jesus said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now pause, because Jesus will continue. But to their question, He's like, well, whose image is on the coin of Caesar's? It's his inscription. Which means that it's his. You have somehow come, come into possession of it, so give it back to him. If it has his image, his inscription, then you should give it back. Simple. Should we pay taxes? Well, yes, because it, you're just giving it back to its rightful owner. No problem. Render to Caesar, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Who cares? It's his money. It's the way the economy works. That's fine. But yeah, okay. Don't get all hung up on it. Then Jesus pivots, right? Within that concept, render, to, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now that wasn't part of their question, was it? But Jesus now uses the topic here to make a larger point. Render to God the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. What is Jesus saying here? 
there's a, a large question that you must consider first. Whose image do you bear? Now, there is a scientific consensus, a scientific position that argues you bear no image at all. That you are the product of random probabilities, chance. That, in fact, human life is the greatest accident that's ever occurred. I mean, the probabilities for you to be you randomly, it's astronomical. In fact, you could pit the microbiology department against the statistician department in any university, and they will argue against each other. Because the probabilities necessary for you to be you, the statisticians will say is, is, is an absolute zero. In fact, I listened to a podcast a few years ago of a group of microbiologists, evolutionists, that are like, there is no such thing as aliens because the fact that life spontaneously came to this planet, it's so out of control that there's no way it could ever happen again. It's like, well, I think you're misunderstood. Whose image do you bear? Do you bear an image? This passage makes no sense whatsoever if you don't bear an image. That being said, if you believe the first few words of your Bible, in the beginning, God. A, God existed. Outside of time and space, he is the great uncaused cause. The, in the beginning was God. And then he acted, he created. In the beginning, God created. Then you can read the rest of the narrative. And in the midst of his creation, of all the things that he made, he made mankind unique, special. We're told in Genesis 1.26 that man was made in his image and likeness. That's what Jesus is hearkening to here. You're not an accident. The Bible will go even so far as to say before you were formed in your mother's womb, God knew you. And he made you. With your corks, with your personality, with your strengths, with your weaknesses, he made you, you. Now sin has tarnished what he made. So he redeems you as well. Amazing. But if you recognize I am a created being by a divine God, I am not an accident, I'm not a product of chance, that God put thought into making me, which by the way is DNA, it's astounding. I don't want to bore you with a bunch of science. But DNA is literal written language. Like God wrote a code unique that makes you you. And we're just even scratching the surface when it comes to our understanding of all of the implications of that code, how special that code is. But God made you. And so God's like, Jesus is like, hey, you're worried about taxes. Let's talk about something bigger. You should render to Caesar what's Caesar's. Who cares? But the bigger question I ask you now is are you willing to render to God what is his? And how is it his? Because his image, his likeness have been stamped on it. You have been created in the image and likeness of God. You are not worthless. You are, you are worth a lot. 
you're special to him. And if you have his image, then what is, what is the most appropriate response? Well, you should render to God what is his because it has his image. So first you have to ask, again, am I an image bearer? Am I an image bearer of what? And if I'm an, an image bearer of God, then in regards to my relationship with him, creator, creation, I should render back to God what is rightfully his. You know you are not your own. And the implications go even broader. Your time is not your own. Think about all that God gives you. It's all his. Your talent, your abilities, it's all his. You think you got that on accident. No, I don't think I got it on accident. God made me. And he gave me strengths. Well, then they're his. Given to you. And so now we got to think about stewardship. Nothing that I have is mine. It's all his. I'm stamped in his image. I'm made in his likeness. And then while I was in sin, he bought me with the blood of his son. So Jesus, you guys are so worked up about taxes. Let's take whose image is on the coin. Oh, Caesar's give it back to him. He owns it. It's part of the mint. But let's talk about you. Do you bear an image? Do you bear a likeness? So render back to God what is his. So the Pharisees come. The Pharisees go. Verse 23, the same day. The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, they came to him. And they asked him, saying, teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, what they're quoting here is they're quoting a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 25 that deals with what is known as the Leverite marriage. It's also kind of coined as the kinsman redeemer. You can see an example of this in practice in the story of Ruth. <clears throat> the law stipulated that if a son got married and didn't produce a child and he dies, that it was then the legal responsibility of the next oldest son to take her in marriage and to provide the firstborn son to be the heir for his brother. The kids that come next become your heirs. But you got to understand that within Israel, there was such an emphasis placed on the perpetuation of families. Keep in mind that when they came to the land of Israel, God had already divided up the pack and tribes that were all based on families. So the descendants of Levi, the tribe of Levi. The descendants of Reuben, the tribe of Reuben, Benjamin, Benjamin, etc. And then when they got to the land, the land was divided up. Again, you can go Joshua, Judges, get back to, to Numbers and whatnot. The land was divided up according to families. And then of the plot of land you were given, within the family structure, more land was given. And it was all kind of on lease from God. And so, like, if you had a plot of land and you didn't have an heir, you wanted a, a perpetuity of your, of your seed, of your bloodline to continue. 
So this was very important in God's structuring of the nation of Israel. We don't have similar customs uh, in our nation, etc., because it's, it's not exactly relevant. But the Sadducees now come to Jesus, and, they're, and, and we're already told, Matthew makes the notation, they don't believe in the resurrection. These are the lefties. They, they don't believe, they believe in the first five books of the Bible, nothing after that. They don't believe in the miraculous, and they don't believe in resurrection. They're the liberal theologians. The Pharisees on the right, the Sadducees on the left. And the deeper you go into liberal theology, you know, they were sad, you see. Come on, that's like the oldest pastor joke in history. They were sad. So they come to Jesus, they bring up this topic. Again, are they really interested in the truth? No, they're trying to catch Jesus. <coughs> so they set this thing up. No children, he dies. His brother shall marry his wife, raise up offspring. This all seems good. <coughs> they continue. Now there, there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also dies, passes the woman along. The third dies, all the way to the seventh. At some point, I'm checking the coffee, you know. Breakfast, something's wrong. But then they say, last of all, the woman dies. Also, therefore in the re resurrection, of which they don't believe, Whose wife of the seven will she be, for they all had her? What a dumb question. If I was Jesus, I would have just, just kind of moved on, you know. Kind of have a rule of thumb that I very rarely will ever answer a hypothetical. I've got enough questions about actual things. Get alone like getting into a, conver a theological conversation on hypothetical scenarios. Can God create a rock too big he can't pick up? I don't care. What, what's that to you? Hypotheticals. And yet Jesus here, he actually answers them. <coughs> and he said to them, you are mistaken. Not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. And note that there's two things these people don't know. They don't know the scriptures, and they don't know the power of God. May we know both. Jesus adds, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read... <clears throat> what was spoken to you by God, saying, and he quotes from Exodus 3, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. <clears throat> God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus is getting into the, the concept of resurrection. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. And so Jesus here, okay, you guys are talking about a scenario where the Leverite marriage is put into practice. First son dies, she gets passed to the second. Second dies, gets passed to the third. Third, all the way to the seventh. And now you're wanting to know who she married to in heaven. And Jesus is basically like, you have no idea what you're talking about. 
Because heaven functions much differently than the way the earth operates. Now, let me warn you up front, it's very dangerous to take one passage and develop some hardline theology on it. Guys, there's a lot about heaven and about personal relationships and interactions that we just don't know. I will say this, you will know each other and you will carry forth relational context that you have on earth into heaven. Your kids will still be your kids. In regards to the, the actual function of a husband and a wife and making this connection about, back to the angels, what Jesus is saying is like, again, relationships function differently. There's no procreation in heaven. Like the angels, there's no procreation. Now, c- can you make the case that, hey, your marriage comes to an end on earth and you're no longer married to your spouse in heaven. And there are some people who are like, I'm really hoping. Like that might be the most encouraging thing I've heard all Sunday. That, that when I said till death do us part, that was legit. I'm giving you this life, but you know, I, I'm, I'm longing for better options. Maybe. Again, that's really not the point of what Jesus is getting at here. He's like, you guys are asking me a question about heaven. There's no heaven without resurrection. You don't even understand how heaven functions. So let's get back to like what actually matters about the question, and that's resurrection. He says, so you guys only believe in the first five books of the Bible. Okay, let's deal with the first five books of the Bible. When God appears to Moses at the burning bush, and they have this dialogue, and God You know, in this discussion, Moses is like, well, who are you? God's, well, I'm God. You know, I I am that I am. Yeah, but, you know, can I get a little more info? He's like, well, hey, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Jehovah is making it clear to Moses, I am the God of your forefathers. I am your God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. But note, it's all in the present tense. This is what the point Jesus is making. He's saying, God could not say in the present tense, I am actively the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if Isaac, Abraham, Jacob are dead. So the very admission of God, that he is presently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the affirmation that they are alive for him to be the God of. Which is why then Jesus says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So the Sadducees had this I gotcha question that's silly. Jesus addresses it, but then he gets the resurrection. He's like, you guys don't believe in resurrection, but you have a problem with your theology, and here's a verse. you got to deal with it. And they don't know how to deal with it. God is the God of the living and not the dead. I love that. Isn't there so much encouragement to that? especially for those of us that have lost loved ones. I don't like that phrase. You know, I lost my grandfather. I mean, in a very practical sense, I know exactly where he is. In Jonesboro, there's a plot of earth. His body's right there. I didn't lose him. Oh, no, I lost grandpa. I didn't lose him. I know where he is. Nor did I, did I, did I, okay, I, I understand his body's there, but I didn't lose him, I didn't lose who, I know he's in heaven. I know he's in heaven. I know he's before the throne of God. 
And I know that the, that the day my grandmother showed up to heaven, about four months later, at the pearly gate, St. Peter was like, thank goodness Carol's here. You got to deal with Big O now. And, and Carol's like, no, it was till death do us part. We're not married anymore. I didn't, you don't lose, God is the, he's the God of the living. Over the last few years, just about everybody's lost somebody. You didn't lose anyone. Especially if their God, if their God's name is Jesus. Continuing. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, literally that, that he muzzled them. And these two, they were factions. They didn't like each other. So the Pharisees, you know, they've already gotten their butt kicking. And now they hear the, the Sadducees just got raked over the coals. So they're pumped up. They gather together. And then one of them, a lawyer. It's always the lawyer. He comes to Jesus with a question, testing him, saying, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, there is some evidence in some of the other accounts of this passage, Mark and Luke, that the man might not be coming in, in quite the same motivation as the previous two groups. Again, the Pharisees, Sadducees, they're not interested in a dialogue. They're not interested in truth. They're not interested in, 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 a, in a genuine tit for tat. They're trying to, to trap Jesus. There does seem to be a little bit of, of evidence that this lawyer, he might be more, a bit more genuine in the question that he's asking. That he's coming and he's genuine that he, he wants to know. And again, kind of the way that Jesus deals with this uh, strikes me just with a bit of a different tone. He says, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And so Jesus said to him, again, there's not a tit for tat, there's not a rebuke up front. Jesus just answers him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Deuteronomy 6.5. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second, which again, he's not, he hadn't been asked about, but he adds. He says the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments <clears throat> hang all of the law and the prophets. Again, Jesus quotes from Leviticus 19 here. What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? Well, okay. Let's address that. Of all the commandments, the one that matters the most, the one that sets the trajectory for them all. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind. Jesus, right from the bat, the first, the greatest of all of the commandments. It's simple. It is about a vertical relationship with God. Forget about everything else. Forget about all the other commandments. The first one, the one that matters the most, it's about you, and it's about God. Now, if we're being real, we have a problem. Because Jesus doesn't just say, love God. 
He kind of ups the ante, doesn't he? Because it's not just loving God, which is agape. It's the strongest term for love in the Greek. He says you need to love God with all of your being. Can we do that? I'd like to think so. I'd like to try. But if we're just being honest, I, I, I fall short. Do you love God with every part of your being? And, and when he breaks it down, he says, do you love the Lord your God with all of your heart? And, and the heart, it's your passions. It's how you can translate that. Are all of your passions in life about loving God? Is God your, the, your chief passion? Oh, man. You know, and, and, then you, and then you continue with just being real and with all of your soul. Which is your will. I mean, I echo Paul. There are some things I will to do I don't do. And the things I will not to do I do. I have a problem with my will. Up front, I'd like to love God with all of my passion and with all of my will and with all of my mind. But if the onus is placed on me loving God, the law condemns me right then and there. Which is why this concept will get expanded. When John tells us that we love God, why? Because he first loved us. You see, if, if your relationship in the horizontal is about you loving God with everything, you're in trouble. But if it's about God loving you with all of his heart and soul and mind and you accepting and receiving that love and, and it being now a reciprocation, if, if the, the origin of this love that we're talking about is not in your ability to love but in your ability to receive God's love and to allow that to change you, there's hope. You see, we can read, you need to love God more. No, you need to experience God's love more and let it change you. So Jesus says, right from the bat, man, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And that should have condemned everyone. I can't do it. And then what does he say? He says, well, then there's the second one. So after the horizontal, now we get the vertical. What does he say? Love your neighbor as yourself. (laughs) Love your neighbor as yourself. Again, it's like, um, I don't know how to do that. Let, let, me, let, me, let me add something. We live in a weird culture. Because this, this actually gets twisted some, in some regards. You see, there's, there's actually a whole theology. Okay, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, friend, if you can't love yourself, how will you ever love your neighbor? You have to first come to the point where you love yourself. That is hogwash. It's hogwash. You know why? I've never met someone that didn't love themselves deeply, passionately. If I took a picture of the room, put it on the screen, you judge the entire picture immediately on one criteria. Not how I look, but you. I look frumpy. 
get rid of the whole picture. That's not, that's not hating yourself. That's loving yourself so deeply you'd get rid of the whole picture where we all look great. I'm going to say something, and I don't mean this to come across very harsh. But even in its like worst dynamic where someone kills themselves, it is truthfully the deepest act of selfishness and self-love anyone could do. Our problem is not that we, that we have an issue of, of self-love. It's, our problem is that we love self way too much. Way too much. And that's our problem. And if you, if you then understand, like, man, I, my problem is that Jesus is like, hey, you should love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And you're like, well, <laughs> I love me more than anyone else. So how in the world could I ever love somebody as much as I love me? And all these things that I twist and it's like, Self-hatred, no, 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 that's just a twisted version of self-love. You don't have a problem loving you. And so again, Jesus is like the horizontal, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Eh, love your neighbor as yourself. I really love myself. That's, that's also difficult. But again, we're told we love God, why? Because he first loved us, and then we love others, why? Because of the awesomeness of his love. Not only do we love God as a reciprocation of his love, we love others only as a reciprocation of his love. Meaning what? Man, there can be no prejudice to your love for others. And there's a bunch of grace. And guess what? You can even love an enemy. Because that's Jesus' love. You can love those that spitefully abuse you and speak ill of you. Why? Because it doesn't originate in you. Again, if the love comes from us, it's twisted. If it flows down from heaven, it's divine. Of these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. Let's finish the chapter. While the Pharisees were gathering together, Jesus asked them. So Jesus has a question now, right? <clears throat> he says, what do you think about the Christ? Let's talk about the Messiah, guys. Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Now, when we talk about the son of, there's two things to kind of keep in mind when you, when you use that phrase. First, we're actually talking about an actual son of, a descendant of. So whose descendant will the Messiah be? And they're like, well, he'll be us, the son of David. He'll be a descendant of David. That's, that's what's being said. So that's one aspect you've got to understand, the phrase son of. But like when Jesus is called the son of God, what does that mean? He's not actually God's son in a biological sense, but it's the phrase that he's of the same nature as. If I'm the son of an elephant, I'm an elephant. If I'm the son of a zebra, I'm a zebra. If I'm the son of God, then I'm God. That's the idea of, of just the use of this particular phrase. So Jesus comes, he's like, let's talk about the Messiah. Whose son is he? Well, the son of David. He's a descendant of David. So Jesus said to them, 
That's interesting, right? So how then does David in the spirit call him, speaking of the Messiah, Lord, saying, and then he quotes from Psalms 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. So right right here at the the end of this, this examination, this back and forth, Jesus comes with his own question. He's like, we're talking about the Messiah. And again, Jesus is getting back to the deeper aspects of, of, of them and their evaluation of him. He's like the Messiah. You see the Messiah as just being the descendant of David when the scriptures are clear that he's more than just the descendant of David. He's greater than David because David acknowledges him as Lord. So, how do you reconcile that? Clearly, the Messiah, Jesus' point, is more than just the descendant of David because David acknowledges his lordship. And David's the most powerful man in, in the kingdom, right? He's the king. And David is acknowledging that the Messiah, while his descendant is greater than him, is Lord. And he's like, what do you figure? And they shut their mouths. They knew what he was saying, and that's the end of this interaction. Jesus declares here, he makes it very evident, Jesus never claimed to be God. He did right here. You understand what he's saying. And he's not going to let them off from what they're planning. He's made it very clear who they're rejecting. It's very evident what the repercussions would be. And then you get to chapter 23, which we'll do later. And Jesus pronounces woes. I mean, chapter 23, you want to talk about karate chopping. I mean, Jesus, he has some things to say. And then we get to this incredible sermon beginning in chapter 24. The Olivet Discourse. And then we are close to the, the end of things. Which is fun because we're approaching the Easter season and we'll be looking at all this um, in its appropriate time and context. So, Lord, we thank you for your word and what it says.